So over the past couple weeks, we have been thinking about Jesus and who he was and what he did. This was the core part of the creed to identify the person and work of Jesus. And today we are going to talk about what I believe to be one of the most difficult doctrines with regard to Jesus, perhaps just because it's one that is difficult maybe to accept or to understand what it is that's going on. So after talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and last week talking about the resurrection that has initiated new creation and how we as Christians get to be a part of that new creative work through Jesus, um, now the creed continues and it says, Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Now, if we're thinking about the ascension of Jesus, and for the church folks, you might have those images of Jesus kind of floating off into the atmosphere. Um, it's a strange story, but there's two texts in the New Testament that really hammer this home, and both of them are written by Luke. One is at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, and then we have at the beginning of Acts, which was also written by Luke. We have another story of Jesus' ascension, and I want to read these um, passages to us just so we have a frame of reference as to what is going on here. This is Luke 24 beginning in verse 36. It says, while they were still talking about this, that is about the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This is Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they are gathered around him and asked him, Lord, 
are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the dates or the times the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of God for the people of God. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about confession, belief, and lingering doubt. And again, we've been doing this for the last few weeks, but if this is your first time here, uh, we want to celebrate that with you. We want to thank you for being here. If many of you have kind of stumbled through the doors and you're carrying the weight of your current situation, whether it be your job or your relationships or your school stuff or the things that are going on in your life, if you have struggled to come into this place expecting to hear a breath of fresh air or hope, we want to thank you for being here, and we want to trust that God will meet us where we are. I do hope also that we can be a bit honest with where we are. From the very beginning of the Restoration Project, what Doug and I set out to do was to create a safe space where people could process their faith and to maybe even admit the fact that they were struggling with certain ideas or tenets and to have people that could partner with them and challenge them and encourage them and maybe point them in the direction or or two, but I know that for many of us, life, when it has happened, has caused us to step back and ask big questions about our faith. Over the last few weeks, we've been kind of looking at the, the nitty-gritty theological truths of, of Christianity, and this might not be the stuff that keeps you up at night where I'm not anticipating many of you going home, maybe tonight because we're talking about it, but last night, I doubt, as you laid your head on your pillow, you thought, the ascension, oh my goodness, just need to ponder that for a moment and think through it. No, you're probably thinking about the Cubs and how they're going to the World Series, and you're probably thinking about who your football team was playing today or what have you. You're thinking about the different things that are going on in your life, but I at least today want to set a table where you know, regardless of where you are in this walk, in this faith journey, there is room for you, not just here, but here. Things that you're processing and asking do not move you out of the family. This is all part of the faith journey that you're on. And at least for me, this is one of the most difficult doctrines or difficult ideas that I've had to process in trying to understand what was going on with the ascension. And there might be some doubt surrounding the ascension. And we're going to look at a couple. For one, it's just the general believability of Jesus kind of floating off into the atmosphere might strike you as a bit strange. Now, Christianity, if we can just be honest for a second, all told is... Um, a faith that kind of demands a little bit from you where you're believing things that you might not tend to believe otherwise. And it might be weird for you to hear me say like the ascension, man, that boggles my mind because here I am accepting Jesus who is both 100% God and 100% man and he is dying in some way that is representative for my sins and then he is rising from the dead but it's the ascension bit where it's like, whoa, 
It might seem strange to you, but the general believability about the ascension, if you just kind of read those stories, it strikes us as strange. There was a guy named H.E.G. Paulus, who was a German rationalist. His dates are here. He was living from 1761 to 1851. This was like at the height of German rational scholarship, where they tried to go back through the stories and figure out, now this doesn't make sense. Let's try to figure out what's going on here. And Paulus has become sort of this caricature of German rational biblical scholarship. That's a mouthful, but it will really set you apart from your friends in the, in the coolest of ways. If you can sneak that into casual conversation, okay? This is Paulus, and the things that he's going through is he wants to look at these stories of Jesus and what he's doing in the New Testament, but he wants to read them rationally or reasonably because things like miracles don't really happen for a German rationalist. So when he thinks about the healing miracles where Jesus shows up and he prays over someone and heals them or he like spits on the ground and puts some dirt in their eyes, like he, Paulus would say, now that doesn't really happen. So what Jesus probably was doing Jesus had like some, some ointments or like some medicines and he just kind of snuck them in there and nobody really saw. So instead of spitting on the ground, he was really just getting out his eye medicine and using it. He also thought that Jesus had just this power of persuasion where he would go up to someone who was sick and say, you're not sick. And they would somehow not be sick. I'm trying to put this in here for a little bit of comedy because I think this is kind of ridiculous and it's okay for you to... Humor me with that, um, I hope. Feeding the 5,000, this is a, a classic argument. We actually talked about this when we were looking through Mark. Some people struggle with the fact that this limited amount of food was broken and miraculously regenerates. So instead, Paulus would say Jesus sets an example of sharing where he's breaking loaves and he's handing out fish and then the other rich people in the group would also take their food and, and share it. He does not want miracles to be a thing because for a German rationalist, they weren't and aren't things. One of my favorites, walking on water. Now, Jesus wasn't really walking on water. He was walking on the banks or the shore of the sea, and there was a mist covering up his feet, and he was saying, ooh, which is great because it's like, Peter, come off of the boat. <laughs> you know, it's like practical joking Jesus sort of thing. Um, the transfiguration, Jesus takes his crew, Peter, James, and John, and they go on top of the mountain, and the disciples are sleeping and then they're awoke by Jesus who's like shining and he's flanked by Moses and Elijah. Uh, for those of you who your Bible knowledge isn't quite up to speed, they are long since dead and they are key figures in the Old Testament and they're here with Jesus. And Paulus says, yeah, see, that doesn't happen. So what probably was, the, the disciples were sleep deprived and when they woke up, the sunrise was happening and it just kind of made Jesus shine and there was two strangers on either side, but Jesus kind of went with, with the narrative. Now those two people, the strangers, are gonna come to play here in a bit. He also popularized a version of the resurrection which was Jesus did not really die on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. Now, as Tim was talking about the crucifixion a while back, it actually was a process that took a long time. So the fact that Jesus died in a matter of hours was strange. And what Paulus wanted to say was, he didn't really die. And he would even go so far as to say, like, when Jesus was um, speared through the side, that was a good thing. It was a phlebotomy. It was a bloodletting thing. And then when Jesus was wrapped up in the ointment, that was good. And when he was put in the cool tomb, that was good. And when the earthquake happened, it kind of woke Jesus up and he just kind of stumbled out like, oh yeah, okay, who's ready for business? 
we also see with the ascension. Within the Bible, Jesus is raised bodily from the dead, and he's given a glorified body, and he's able to appear in certain places. But for Paul, that, that doesn't make sense. You can't do that. So the ascension was not just Jesus floating off into outer space. The ascension was Jesus being blocked from his disciples by a cloud and the two strangers again, who in uh, the Acts story, the, the two angel type figures, they show up and say, why are you guys looking into the sky? The same Jesus will come back in, in the same way that he left. Paulus would say those two strangers are the two same strangers at the transfiguration and they know that Jesus is getting ready to die so when the cloud shows up and blocks their view he kind of, they usher them out and say oh why are we still here? We need to get out of here so that Jesus could die and no one would, would know. See for a German rationalist miracles don't happen and Paulus was struggling through this and just the general believability about the ascension. Now I know that in this group we don't have um, 18th and 19th century German rationalist biblical scholars, but I bet that we have some people here that struggle with some of the claims of the Christian faith, that struggle to believe some of the things that Jesus said and Jesus did, and not just his death and his resurrection, but perhaps we struggle to believe that he would do that for me or for you. You see, when we come into this space, and again, this goes back to the things that we bring with us, for a lot of us, the baggage that we're bringing in is not just bills and relationship woes, but perhaps some of those things have contorted or um, disfigured our understanding of who we are. So when we think about the gospel, and we think about someone who was taking on sin for us, it's hard to fathom. We can talk about the general believability of Jesus floating off into outer space, but I think for some of you it's, it's more personal, where this whole gospel is difficult for you to accept. Now, we do need to deal with some of these uh, issues with regard to the cosmological difficulties of the ascension. Now, for an ancient Near Eastern mindset, think Old Testament, they probably adopted what is called a three-tiered view of the universe. Here we are on land or on the earth, and up there is heaven, and that's where God lives, and down there below us is Sheol, the land of the dead where people go after they die. And they kind of had this, God is up there somewhere, and here we are, and there's stuff down there too. Now, in, in the first century, in Jesus' time, they probably didn't adopt something this rudimentary, but their understanding of the world was certainly not as uh, refined as ours. Still, when we as Christians think about this, I believe that for many of us that have grown up in church or read our Bibles in a certain way, we struggle to make sense of where Jesus actually went when he floated up into the clouds. Because as the good scientists that we are, we know what's up there, sort of. I mean, we don't know all of the different things that are going on in, in the universe, but we have telescopes and things that let us know. In fact, we have crazy people like uh, this guy who got into this 
little thing that had a helium balloon strapped on top of it, and he went up 24 miles into the atmosphere, and he parachuted out. He free-falled for four and a half minutes and went about 900 miles an hour. You guys cool with that? <laughs> I mean, the video's pretty awesome. Um, what's, what's also neat about this is he broke a record that was set 52 years prior. Some guy like wearing uh, like those cool rain boots that girls wear, you know, when it's raining and they're really stylish and chic. It's like guy, he put on that like some, some weird suit. And this was like in the 50s when the guy was jumping out of this other thing that was carried up by helium balloon. Maybe, okay, I was telling somebody last week that if I just had the... Uh, the beauty of preaching two sermons, I know what is that I could cut and what I, what I could keep in. And I know that if I was to do this again, I, Felix, he's gone because you guys don't seem to care that this guy's up 24 miles in outer space. Um, but think about it. Jesus goes up and it's similar to a guy sponsored by Red Bull in a little capsule with a helium balloon that goes straight up 24 miles and then he jumps. He jumps. Okay. Um, Michael Bird is an Australian biblical scholar and he says it's important to realize that the ascension is not making a statement about cosmology, how the world is or where stuff is and it's not making a statement on how to find heaven on an astronomical map. What we have in the ascension is a mixture of visual marvel, strange metaphor and utter mystery. Our dear friend, the good Bishop N.T. Wright, also says, when the Bible speaks of heaven and earth, and, and this is where stuff's already um, up here, right? Pun intended, ascension. Hey, hey, okay. Um, but here, what he's about to say, your mind is going to explode, okay? So I do not fault you if tonight, as you lay your head down on your pillow, you are thinking about some of these, these themes, okay? But what the good bishop says is this, when the Bible speaks of heaven and earth, it is not talking about two localities related to each other within the same space-time continuum. You did not think you were gonna hear that phrase tonight. Or about a non-physical world contrasted with a physical one but it's talking instead about two different kinds of what we call space, two different kinds of what we call matter, and quite possibly two different kinds of what we call time. In your mind, though, I would guess that heaven is out there somewhere, and I'm going to go there at some point. Biblically, it seems like something different is happening. We know because we have telescopes that when Jesus floated off into outer space that he didn't keep going until he found heaven. There's something different at play here. And this is the best that we can do, is to think about something that was written for children. And as kids, we were like, whoa, this is awesome. You can go through your wardrobe and enter into a mythical, crazy world with half men and half horses, which I think would be quite frightening, personally. I didn't even like going to uh, theme parks where people were dressed up in those big suits, you know? Disney was not my, my forte. Um, but it's like Narnia is happening while also things here 
are happening and the Pevensey kids just go through the wardrobe. For the super nerds in here, um, it might also be to wrap our brains around this, one of the weirdest slash awesomest movies of all time, uh, Interstellar, where we had this weird space-time traveling Matthew McConaughey, not driving a Lincoln, but maybe, I don't But he's like traveling through time and he has this moment with his, his daughter where she's here and he's in some weird fourth dimension and he's still contacting her or being with her, okay? Now this is all like dealing in the world of crazy physics and that kind of stuff and I don't mean to go there because I have no idea what it is that I'm talking about. But I do know that when Jesus ascends, he doesn't just reach some other place. As we know, at least through scripture, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And how do we make sense of that? It's a mystery. And I, like many of my German rational friends, am not always satisfied with that, but I can at least step back and accept it for what it is and claim with my community, we believe. And a lot of times that, that claim is based not on the things that we can prove, but the things, and this, again, this is not cool for my German rational friends, but the things that we know we have experienced and the things that we know that we have seen that defy any sort of logical explanation. The way that Jesus has shown up in our lives. We see throughout scripture this kind of bringing together of heaven and earth. At least that's where the story is ending. The story is not ending where we fly off somewhere. No offense to any of the, the hymns of yesteryear. But the end of the story is the new heavens and the new earth. They come here and they become one. They meet here in this beautiful picture of restoration where the things that Jesus has initiated in his life and his death and his resurrection, they're brought to fulfillment the things that are not right here are made right. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves because there is one more doubt that surrounds the ascension and it's not just the difficulty of the believability or it's cosmological issues that, that come along with that. Uh, yeah, we could see that there's probably a better way of phrasing this would be the confusion surrounding this or just understanding where is Jesus or how it is that we even think about this as Christians. But we also have doubts surrounding the ascension because of the implications of the ascension. Now, according to the creed, Jesus ascends and he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Luke Timothy Johnson says that Jesus is no longer among the dead is only one part of the resurrection. The other is that he now lives with God's own life and power. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God he is interceding for us, but he is also reigning and ruling, which begs the question, really? Because when you look outside and you see the things that are going on, it causes you to say, Jesus, where are you?
Now, this is not to get super political here, but I mean, most people would say, not my number one candidate. <laughs> most people. But more seriously, um, it's not just the American political scheme that has causing many good-natured people to question where God is in the world, but the experiences that we have been through as a people. You think about 9-11 and the families that were affected and how that has completely shaped the American reality. And for some people, it might continue to be a question of where are you, God? Especially when we go outside of American borders and we see uh, the difficulties in Darfur or we see still the ongoing effects of the Rwandan genocide or we see images like this that haunt us to the core of our being where kids are being hurt. And we think through the Syrian refugee issues you know that really famous picture with the kid on the beach? I couldn't even put it on here. Because now, especially as a dad with kids, like, no. I don't even want to think about that. But back to uh, the American way of life, we've got issues in Ferguson, and we've got issues in Charlotte, and we've got issues in Baltimore, and we've got these things that are causing people to ask the question, Jesus, are you really reigning and ruling? Are you really in control? And like, I, I know that I just threw out a couple of the, the low-hanging fruit with regard to the difficulties in the world, but I have a blank frame up here because in your life, you have your own issues and difficulties where you have said, Jesus, are you really in control? Perhaps it's a family member that fell ill Perhaps it's a relationship that you lost. Perhaps it's, it's a job that went south. Perhaps it's something else that I didn't bring up. But for many of us, I think that when we think about what the ascension implies, that Jesus is in control and he will return again to restore this world, it, it causes us to say, I don't see it. And I struggle even to believe it. What's interesting about this is for an ancient audience, when they heard these things, it wasn't, oh, this is good news that Jesus is up there and he's reigning and ruling. He's going to make everything right and we can just sit here and relax and just hang out. The issue that they would have heard was we have been entrusted to do the work of bringing the kingdom here. The church in particular has been entrusted to do the work. As we talked about last week, where we see the wrongs in the world and we begin to right them. This is what N.T. Wright says, the kingdom will come as the church, energized by the spirit. It goes out into the world vulnerable, suffering, praying, praising, misunderstood, misjudged, vindicated, and celebrating. Pause for a moment. Is this your image of the church? For many of us, part of that baggage that we bring with us is past hurts by the church. And I hope that we have not become part of that, but I know that there's probably many ways where we have missed it, where we have missed our opportunity. But do we think about the church as vulnerable and suffering and praising and praying and misunderstood and misjudged and vindicated and celebrating? 
always, as Paul puts it in one of his letters, bearing in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed. Is this the witness that we are providing people? Now here, I want to be very clear about this because over the last couple of weeks as we've talked about like our job and the way that we can build uh, the kingdom or at least build for the kingdom that is coming, I do not want to replace the church with Jesus. And this is the thing about the ascension. Jesus in his glorified body, he does go somewhere. We might not be able to know where it is, but he is still reigning and ruling and he is still present and he is still a part of that mission and he is calling us to partner with him. He is not calling us to do everything that he cannot do or to, to take his, his place. But we, in a sense, become the church that partners with Jesus towards this restorative project And we still trust and we still hope that Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who is interceding on our behalf, who will come again, we can still hope and pray and believe that his kingdom, when restoration happens to the full, it will never end. The church is still the church, but the church must also be the church. I think so many of us, and it might be our our theology or it might just be our our own personal makeup, but we just kind of say like, hey, this is great. Jesus is doing that stuff and I'm just gonna sit and I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna watch. And we are not the church that's energized to go out and to be this different image to the world that's called to be an embodiment of Christ himself. He ascended to heaven, the creed says, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Growing up, when I thought about Jesus judging, I thought that that was like a scary thing, and I didn't want to be on the, the wrong side of that, but and there is, there's an element of that, but there's also an element throughout Scripture where when we hear about the good judge who shows up, it's a, it's a way that the wrongs of the world are righted. It's a way where this story that we are living in the midst of, that Jesus has started with his resurrection and new creation has been initiated and where the world is being restored, we can wait and we can hope. And even in the midst of the images that are shown here, we can see glimpses of the kingdom invading, and at times the kingdom invades through us and through what God is calling us to do as a community. His kingdom will never end. So we come back to this idea of confession and belief and lingering doubt, and I know, like, it's just strange for me that this story is, is, it is what it is. Um, I believe that Jesus has ascended, whatever that means. And I believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, even though our world is in a state of chaos. And I believe that Jesus is present here with us. And I believe that when he brings about restoration, that when his kingdom takes over this place in the fullness that is certain to happen, 
that it will never end. The question then becomes, what do we do in response? How are our lives different because of that? And for the Christians in the room, as we claim we believe, my hope is that we live as agents of justice and reconciliation and redemption and hope. And for those of you that are still on the fence and you have these lingering doubts because some of these stories are so over the top that you can't just get there, what I want you to hear and perhaps maybe even what I want you to accept for the first time is there is room for you at the table to sit and to partake and to feast and to be transformed by the spirit of the risen Christ who will lead you into all truth.